You know, it is Mother's Day, and if you start to look through the Bible for something to preach about on Mother's Day, you don't run out of options. The Bible is full of examples of godly women who made an impact among the people of God. Uh, you, you start early on in the book of Genesis, and you see a woman named Sarah who miraculously gives birth to a son named Isaac, who eventually gets married and has a son named Jacob, who becomes the father of God's people, Israel. Uh, women are everywhere. Turn the pages a couple. You see this woman named Jochebed. She gives birth to a baby boy named Moses, and she hides him in a little basket in the Nile River to preserve him from Pharaoh's attempt at genocide. And Moses, of course, leads God's people out of slavery. You go on to the New Testament, you see a woman named Mary, pregnant in less than ideal circumstances, give birth to the most significant man who ever lived, Jesus. And then everywhere you look in Jesus' life, there are women following along behind him, committed to him as disciples, and financially supporting the things he did. The Bible is full of examples of godly women. Then you start looking through the pages of church history. You start to discover that this isn't just a Bible thing. Women matter among the people of God. We read about the third century North African martyr named Perpetua, the persistent praying mothers of St. Augustine, her name was Monica, of the China missionary Hudson Taylor, whose mother prayed for him for years that he'd be converted. Her name was Amelia, the mother of the Baptist preacher in England, Charles Spurgeon. Her name was Eliza. These women prayed for their sons, that God would use them. We read the stories of courageous missionaries, Lottie Moon, Elizabeth Elliot. Then, of course, we get to our own day and think about all those women who taught us in Sunday school and vacation Bible school and who sang us to sleep at night and filled our ears with the stories of Jesus and who were patient with us when we were losing our cool in church and uh, trying not to rip our ears off, but getting really close. You know, we, we know women matter in the church. Now, the, the title of today's sermon is God's People Need Mothers. And man, we need mothers. We need faithful women of God who live out their identity as God's chosen people, taking on the character of Jesus, loving selflessly and sacrificially, putting up with all of our mess, trying to help us figure it out, whatever that means. We need mothers. And I want you to know this morning, we need mothers because they fuel the mission of the church. Without mothers, of course, none of us would be here. So we need biological mothers. But more than that, we need spiritual mothers, women who take us under their wing, who guide us, love us, who nurture us to be the people we're supposed to be. Are you all a mother like that? Ladies, is that the type of mother you are, type of mother you want to be? I believe it is. Y'all have mothered me for the last 18 months. You have loved my family and nurtured us. We feel right at home because of you. And so I want to thank you for that. And I want you to open your Bible with me to the book of Titus. Because we're continuing our series through Paul's letter to Titus. And we're going to be here in Titus chapter 2 and verse 3. Looking at what we left off last week. So I'd have something to preach on Mother's Day. Titus 2, verse 3. Likewise, urge the young men to be... Oh, sorry. That was verse 6. 
Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what's good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now, over the past several weeks, we have been working our way through this letter. And if today's your first day with us through this series, let me just kind of get you up to speed. Titus was the Apostle Paul's young assistant. And he'd left him behind on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean to continue the work of establishing churches that were going to hold fast to the gospel message. So Paul told Titus what type of leaders those churches need. They needed godly men who had taken onto themselves the character and lifestyle that Christ would have them live. And they need to be ready to teach God's people how they were supposed to live and to refute the people in the church who were going to speak against the gospel. Then we saw Paul identify these people who'd speak against the gospel. He called them rebellious men. So they were detestable for every good work. They're absolutely worthless. But what's worse than that is they made their living off of leading God's people astray. They were false teachers who spread false teaching and lived ungodly lives. And so last week, we saw Paul tell Titus how God's people were supposed to live. Not as false teachers, worthless for every good deed, but they're supposed to live in a way that's consistent with the gospel message. The gospel that says God sent his own son, Jesus, to live a sinless life and die a sacrificial death on the cross for sinners like us, so that by putting our faith in him, We'd experience a resurrection life of our own to live out his resurrection life now in this life and to be with him forever someday in the future. There's a lifestyle that's consistent with that gospel message, a lifestyle that commits itself to taking on the character of Christ more and more each day, being conformed into his image, living out who we are and what we've been called to do in the power of his Holy Spirit. And that's the way God's people are supposed to live. Last week we saw particularly young men and old men that they're supposed to take on these virtuous lives, committed to good works, doing good wherever they can. But then today we find out that the church is not just an old boys club or some kind of crazy fraternity, but there are women there. And the way women live matters too. The way they live brings honor to the Word of God. And not just any women. Paul says women who live godly lives. According to Paul in verse 3, he says, older women, and remember last week we said this older, uh, because of life expectancy, typically segregates the young and the old at the age of 50. So if you're 50 or above, maybe he's talking to you here. I'll let you define old however fits you, okay? You do you. But this is what Paul says, it's of the utmost importance that older women be reverent in their behavior. Older women, be reverent in your behavior. And if you are older, maybe you notice, like some of us old souls notice, that reverence is one of those things that seems to be in short supply in our society. You know, you watch the old movies, and it seems to be that at least way back when, wherever that is, people at least made a show of showing respect and deference to people in authority. They respected their teachers. They said, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. They respected the authorities that were invested in police officers or in politicians. But 
you know, today there doesn't seem much reverence left in our culture. Uh, we are an informal bunch. Even in our church services, when we gather to worship just the holy guy, they sometimes tend to be lighthearted, uh, inspirational pep rallies. Um, not so much the reverent encounter with God that maybe we think they ought to be. And because of that, I, we hear this command, older women are to be reverent in their behavior. And we kind of assume that what Paul means is that older women are confined to a life of stuffiness. That's the spiritual equivalent of having those plastic protectors on the cushions of your couch. You know, is this what Paul means? Hey, don't spill it. Don't take drinks into the living room. Stay out of there. Is that what he means? This kind of reverence? It's actually pretty interesting when you dig in. This word reverent is only used one time in all the Bible. It's right here. It's uh, from a Greek compound word that was used in other literature to describe the behavior of priests serving in the temple. George Knight, one of the commentators I've been leaning on for this series, translates a phrase like this. Older women, carry into your daily life the demeanor of a priestess in a temple. That's different. Other translations try to help us. The King James Version says that older women should live with behavior as becometh holiness. The New Living Translation says that older women should live in a way that honors God, which I think gets to the heart of it. But however you want to translate the phrase, it's pretty obvious. Paul expects older women in the church to live a different kind of life, a life with a certain gravity to it, a certain holiness, a certain reverence. You see, it's not just any old lifestyle, but it's the lifestyle of one who's been set apart by God for a special task, as a priestess was in a temple. A holy woman is how Paul expects them to live, because that's exactly what you are. You are a holy woman, chosen by the Father from before time began, infinitely loved more than you could ever imagine, treasured so much that he'd send his only son to die for you, set apart to live for him for all of time. That's you. You are a holy woman. And he said, so live that way. This kind of holiness ought to reveal itself in every aspect of your life. Uh, it's what he means when he says be reverent in their behavior. That word behavior means your entire demeanor. The whole way you carry yourself out in the world, you're to exhibit and exude a certain holiness. But you may have noticed there are three particular things that he wants to draw their attention to. Three particular areas of their lives that they need to understand the application of holiness and reverence. The first is speech. The godly life he's talking about includes the way they talk. He says they shouldn't be malicious gossips. Y'all ever heard malicious gossip before? It's that kind of speech that is intended to cause emotional harm or reputational harm. It's the spreading of rumors to tear somebody else down. The Greek word for this is diabolos. Uh, which is the same word that's translated elsewhere in the New Testament as devil. He says, don't be, he doesn't say don't be devils. He says, don't be malicious gossips. But the idea is the slanderous attitude that the devil carries around spreading about God's people in the world ought not to be present 
among the older women in the churches of Crete. And you almost imagine what he's talking about. The new Bravo show, The Real Housewives of Ancient Crete. And you can imagine these ladies <laughs> gathered around on their ladies' night, and one of their girlfriends is absent. And they start talking, well, you see the way she treats her kids? You see the way her kids run all over her? You know, you, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, Aaron knows exactly what I'm talking about. We've all heard it before. He says, this is inappropriate among the older women who've been set apart to holiness. Don't be malicious gossips. But then he says, because y'all know, in vino veritas, in wine is truth, he says y'all need to be careful in how you use alcohol. They don't need to be enslaved to much wine. You start to examine the New Testament and you see that I find it challenging, and we could talk about this on another time, I find it challenging to make the case that the Apostle Paul was a teetotaler. You know, that there's no universal prohibition against drinking alcohol. But what we do see time and time again in the New Testament is that an overabundant and excessive use of alcohol is a representation of something that's inconsistent with faithful Christianity. You know, here he calls it slavery. And enslavement to wine was as big of a problem in the first century as it is today. Uh, you know, we have ancient sources that tell us bluntly that alcoholism was a major problem among the older women of the ancient world, both Jews and Greeks. And part of the reason is proximity. Uh, a woman's major domain of influence in her world was the household. And the household includes, as you well know, the kitchen. And in the kitchen, there often was wine. And if you found yourself in there for hours a day, cooking, cleaning, the bottle called to you. And they found themselves imbibing throughout the day. It was a common problem. It was everywhere. These women drank themselves consistently into malicious gossip, I guess. And Paul says, that's inconsistent with the holy women y'all have been called to be. Don't be enslaved to wine. We call it addiction now, dependence. And it is kind of a little funny to talk about it in terms of the first century. But it ruins people's lives today. It turns it upside down, and it's totally contrary to the spirit of freedom that Jesus died to give us. Living enslaved to any vice, whether it be alcohol or all sorts of evil things you might find yourself looking at on the Internet, being enslaved to anything is contrary to the way of Jesus. And ladies, he wants something better for you. He wants you to know the freedom of the Holy Spirit and to live in self-control, to be in, able to choose to do something rather than being enslaved to it. That's what Paul says. Don't be enslaved to wine. It's inconsistent with who you are. And anyway, there's more important stuff to do than to be sitting back at the end of the day drinking the bottle by yourself. He said, a godly life includes teaching what is good. They ought to be teaching what is good. He's a woman who has been saved by Jesus and is day by day being conformed into his image, has a really special role to play. She's not left in the kitchen all by herself. She's been set apart to the task of disciple-making or of being a spiritual mother. And just as those elders and overseers back in chapter 1 were called to have a certain kind of character and lifestyle that gave them personal authority 
And the kind of weight that comes only by knowing that that guy lives what he says. He's not just up there talking. He actually means what he says and believes what he says. The same ought to be true for these older women. That they're supposed to take on a certain character and lifestyle that allows them to go around teaching, not just do what I say, but look at me and do as I do. So they're supposed to teach what is good. And you may notice who Paul tasks them with teaching. He says in verse 4, so that they may encourage the young women. See, it's not surprising to me that Paul quickly gets back to the task of teaching. Although the word he uses is a compound word that exists nowhere else. The Apostle Paul invented this word under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that y'all would hear it today. He wants older women to teach what is good. But it's not surprising that he gets back to teaching because he's been hammering this teaching from the beginning. He says that he's been set apart as an apostle of Jesus Christ and a slave of God so that the elect of God, those chosen by God before the foundation of the world, would come to a knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And that knowledge comes by teaching. He's going to teach. Then he's going to give Titus the task of appointing some elders who are going to teach. And even though there's some false teachers running around spreading things that aren't true because they're out, out for selfish gain, Titus isn't supposed to be like that. He's supposed to teach what accords with godliness. And so now he gets back to teaching again, but it's a task given to the older women, towards the younger women. It's like Paul knew, as the commentator William Hendricks said, that no one is better able to train a young woman than an experienced older woman. It's, it's kind of silly for me to stand up here and speak to you with some kind of force of personal experience telling you how you ought to mother your children or how do you ought to live your life as a woman. I mean, I, I come to you, I'm trying to come to you on the authority of the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit and trust that He's going to impress it onto you. But how much more meaningful is it is when somebody comes to you with the Word of God under the power of the Holy Spirit and says, hey, I know what you're going through. My kids were little ones too, and it's hard. There's a different weightiness to that. There's an authority and integrity that comes from knowing that you've shared these lived experiences. And so the Apostle Paul told Titus to teach these older women to disciple and invest in these younger women. They know what it's like to be there, and therefore they can best tailor the Word of God to their situation. And this teaching is related to a few spheres. The first one being the family. And Paul says that these older women need to teach the younger women to love their husbands. And all God's men said, amen. amen. Love your husband. Yeah. And we know that for a variety of reasons, this might have been challenging. You know, not everybody's married. And the Apostle Paul certainly knew that. In fact, he said it's better that unmarried people remain unmarried if they can't. So they can devote themselves completely to God. And there are people in the church who have been set apart to singleness. And they are completely devoted to God. And they ought to be celebrated, treasured, and supported in their unique calling in life. But in the first century, the expectation was that most young women would get married and have a family. And, and even today with plummeting fertility rates... 
thought, I think 23 states, did y'all see this this week? 23 states in America had more people die in them last year than that were born. And it's not just a condition of COVID, it's a trend of declining fertility. People aren't having kids anymore. So maybe it's not so much the case anymore, but in the first century, it was the expectation that young women would get married. But here's the deal. Most first century marriages were totally arranged. And that probably meant that at least at first, the husband and wife relationship wasn't really defined by the warm fuzzies of personal emotion. And unlike the first century husband, uh, many men today have developed this great skill of listening and supporting their wives in every way. And those first century guys, they hadn't figured that out yet. <laughs> no, honestly, honestly, it's unlikely that the first century man felt any obligation whatsoever to be somebody to lean on for his wife. That wasn't his role. That wasn't his task. And it wasn't expected of him. Bunch of bumps. Get it together. <laughs> but the real issue is this. This highly likely that a lot of these young women that Paul's talking about had unbelieving husbands. And maybe they were wondering if God still wanted them to stay with this loser. He didn't listen to them, didn't care about what they were going through. <laughs> but he didn't love God. And if they're going to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, they got this big anchor tied to them. Maybe they ought to cut him loose. And Paul says, no, these older women ought to teach their younger women to love their husbands. That's a common theme for Paul, love, love, love. He told the Ephesians in Ephesians 5, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ loved you and gave himself for you an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. He told the Colossians in Colossians 3, Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Listen, Christians are supposed to be characterized by our love for God, for our neighbor, and for one another. But there's really no more important place for love to manifest than in the home. So it says older women should teach the younger women to love their husbands. And I'm thankful for that. Then we turn over to verse 5, and he turns his attention to another aspect of that relationship, where he says that younger women ought to learn to be subject to their own husbands. And I'm going to leave the jokes aside, because this is heavy. Love makes sense. We get that. We want love to define the relationship between husbands and wives and parents and children. But submission is harder for us to handle. You know, it doesn't help that the word Paul uses for subject is the same word he uses to describe the relationship between servants and their masters. And so if you're just applying the same sense from one to the other, you start to take on this idea that maybe what Paul is calling the women in Crete to do is just capitulate, give themselves to the spirit of the age. You know, the first century was not a place noted for its equality or egalitarianism. There's a very strict hierarchy, hierarchy of importance in both the home and society. And men were at the top. And it was expected that women were around. They had their own domain of influence, but they were less than and in subjection to their husbands. And there are scholars and good Christians who believe that that's exactly what this is. That what we have here in Titus 2.5 is Paul simply 
impressing upon the church the need to fit in with their society so that nobody blasphemes the word of God, which is what he says there in verse 5. And I've thought about that a lot over the last 10 years because this is one of those issues that seems to be pressing in on the church. We live in an egalitarian society that expects not only equality but equity. And when we come to the issue of men and women, the predominant spirit of our age is one of feminism, right? Which I guess I'm not a really, I'm not a scholar of it, but I know that song, Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better. And you start to get this idea that the expectation is that women ought to do and can do and should do everything that a man can do. And because of that, many people have wondered if Christianity is even good for women. You know, here it is, the preacher's up there on Sunday telling the wives to fall in line and be subject to their husbands. I mean, isn't this just sort of a holdover from an earlier time? Men enforcing rigid patriarchy on their wives? But if that was the case, if this was simply a capitulation to the first century culture, it would have to be the only example of that in this entire section. I mean, Paul lays out all kinds of virtues and lifestyle decisions that he expects God's people to make. And every last one of them, I've argued it both weeks now, is a natural progression from who they are in Christ. That these aren't arbitrary things. These aren't cultural things. These are gospel things that take root in a person's heart when they've given themselves to God. And I believe that's the same thing for wives and husbands. I mean, he tells the wives over... In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, he says, Subject yourselves to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband's the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Listen, I want you to hear me real clearly. Because if older women are supposed to teach younger women, y'all are going to have to figure out the specific applications of this in the 21st century. And y'all can let me know what you figure out. But this is what I take to be the principle, that submission to one's husband is not simply a cultural thing, but it is a beautiful picture that God intends to use to draw all people to the relationship that Jesus has with his bride, the church. That as they see loving relationships between husbands and wives, they'll see husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church and giving themselves up for them laying their, down their rights to sacrificially love and serve their wives. And in return, they'll see a wife who lovingly follows her husband's leadership. Source, there will be all sorts of places where this sort of leads to friction and tension. And we'll all play it out imperfectly. But I think Paul's heart is here that as these things take root in a person's heart and life, they're not drawing attention to the cultural norms. They're drawing attention to Christ. But Paul moves beyond the husband. Y'all ready to the children? <laughs> Y'all are real quiet here. I don't know. It must have been hard. But he says they ought to learn to love their children. And let's be honest. The love that mothers have for their children is typically what we think about when we think about Mother's Day. And whether it's humans or bears or dogs or elephants, we understand that there is a natural affection that mothers feel for their children. The mama bear mentality. They're going to wrap their whole family in a blanket of pure protective love. And so it's strange to think that somebody would have to be commanded to love their children. But many of you, maybe some of you perhaps, have not experienced the perfect blanket 
of a mother's love. Not everybody gets to. We live in a broken world. And there are more kids in foster care than they have homes to put them, and they're sleeping in CPS offices tonight. Children are sometimes hard to love. It's true. Uh, I've experienced that personally this week with my own children. (laughs) But at times, mothers can feel like children are an imposition, a barrier to the life they wanted, the life they thought they could have. Maybe still could have if these snotty kids weren't around. And so as a result, they neglect their kids, harm their kids physically, psychologically, emotionally. I mean, it's, it's true that there's not one thing in our entire world as strong as a mother's love. And yet... Even a mother's love is infected by sin. And it's terrible. But Paul says among the people of God, mothers ought to love their kids. I think surely Paul has in mind more than the band-aid for the ouchie, the kiss on the cheek at night. Paul's talking about something deeper, a true love, a love that goes beyond the external, even the emotional, and gets down to the spiritual. You know, the Barna Research Group published a research study in 2019 that talked to teenagers about the person they went to most with different life scenarios. Unsurprisingly, they talked to their dad about politics and money. But 8 out of 10 Christian teenagers went to their mom with questions about their faith. 80% of Christian teenagers, the first person they turn to is their mom when they're asking questions about God. That's natural. Mom is supposed to be the person who loves us enough, who tells us what we need to hear, not what we want to hear, and does it in a way that we think she's just told us we're the greatest person who ever lived. How much more important is it for a mother to invest love in her children in order to bring them to faith? That passage Mike read, he's sitting different today, Mike read for us earlier in 2 Timothy 3, tells Timothy, hey, remember who you learned all this stuff from. How you've been knowing it since you were just a little baby. He's identified those people earlier. Paul says he's brought to tears every time he thinks about Lois, Timothy's grandmother, and Eunice, his mom. They are godly women who embodied the lifestyle of a holy woman, a priestess serving in the temple of God, and loved their son, grandson enough, to talk to him about Jesus from the time he was a baby. Older women need to instruct younger women to love their kids that much, to go beyond the boo-boos and the ouchies and to tell them about Jesus. Then he moves outside the realm of family, and we'll move through these pretty quickly, to the personal character. He says older women need to teach younger women to be sensible and pure. We mentioned sensible several times last week. Um, It's actually the one thing that ought to unite the people of God together, their sensible outlook on the world. told you that it means to be prudent or to be thoughtful, to know what to do in every moment, to choose to do what's right. And man, the kind of circumstances that women and moms get faced with every day baffles me. 
able to juggle all those different things and know how to respond to each kid individually. I got one volume. It's loud. My wife knows how to tailor it to our children in so many different ways. They take to this sensible thing in a different way. They are thoughtful and prudent, and they are an example to us all. But he also says they should be pure, which surely is talking about the faithfulness they're supposed to show to their husband. It does mean that. But I think it takes into view more than that. And it's looking at the whole picture of their moral makeup. And he he talks about this back in Titus 1.15. If you want to turn over there, I told you when we were talking about those false teachers that Paul laid down a gospel principle that the false teachers failed to understand. That to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. The purity Paul's talking about, those who are pure, uh, objective quality of one's moral character, you are either pure or you're defiled, is not something one person can do on their own. You know, you can't purify yourself. You can't clean yourself. When it comes to each of us, we need God to look at us and say, though your sins are like scarlet, I will wash you white as snow. We're going to see this in a few weeks in Titus chapter 3. He says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but by the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Lord. The purity Paul talks about in Titus 1.15 is a purity that God objectively works in us by His Holy Spirit, where He takes our sinfulness and He exchanges it for the perfect spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. That's the purity of Titus 1.15. So when he says that older women need to teach younger women to be pure, what I think he means is not just to be faithful to their husband, though that's certainly part of it. What he means is they're supposed to learn how to keep themselves pure as God has made them pure, to keep themselves unstained from sinfulness. And surely that's a commandment we can all get behind and take to heart, men included. But lastly, the last sphere he talks about is the world. Older women need to teach younger women how to relate to the world. And the first thing he says is that they should be workers at home. Workers at home. You know, the sphere in which the first century woman lived her life was the home. That was, that was it. The third century female philosopher, Fentis, says in her treatise on women's temperance, female avocations are to guard the house, to stay at home, to receive and minister to her husband. That was the mindset. The woman's place is at home. So the first century woman oversaw the household. And in connection to everything that happened there, she often oversaw the businesses that were run out of the household. So we see in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, a woman named Lydia who's down at the washing place where the women do their laundry, and she gets saved, gives her life to Jesus, and we're told that she was a merchant of purple dyes. So Lydia is a woman out there doing laundry, but she's more than just a laundry lady. She's actually a business person who oversees a big enough business that she was wealthy enough to have a large enough home that the whole church could meet in her house. Or we think of the Proverbs 31 woman. 
who in verse 17, it says she girds herself with strength and makes her arm strong. She works out. <laughs> I don't think that's what that means. I just thought some of y'all would get a <laughs> kick out of that. <laughs> and she opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Listen, what Paul's talking about when he says they ought to be workers at home is not the stereotypical Susie homemaker. This is a woman who utterly excels in the domain of her calling. And that's what Paul has in mind. Y'all ever been around a pregnant lady when she starts to, quote unquote, nest? Starts getting everything in order? Or when company's coming and the house has to be put just right and everybody's got to be on a cleaning frenzy and a folding party and everything goes crazy because you got to get the house ready. There's something natural about that. That's biological. You nest by instinct, by created order. And when a woman gives herself to working at home, not staying at home, but working at making and building a home, the whole family flourishes. You know what I mean, don't you? I really want to pause here for a second because working at home is probably the hardest thing anybody could have to do because it's not just about cooking. Like, you got to do all your recipes and make sure that things don't burn and if it burns, your husband's going to get mad and then you're a failure or it's not about just cleaning, and if your house is not clean, when people come over, they think you're less than. And it's not just about your kids, and if your kids don't act right, people think you're a terrible mother. It's all that combined. And so it's an impossible thing. It's a crushing burden, and it's a terrible weight. And then you hear somebody stand up on stage who not only has never experienced it, but never will. And it's easy to think, hey, you know, this is all well and good, but you ought to come live a day in my shoes and see how it really is. But I think God is good. I take that as just a given. And that everything God calls us to is for our good. And so when he says that younger women should be workers at home or they should give their attention to creating a flourishing environment for their family, then that's a good thing too. That there is a certain good only word I can come up with, that comes about for the entire family when this happens. And of course, my wife is a registered nurse, so it doesn't mean always staying at home. But it does mean having a certain perspective and attitude towards the home that makes it a safe place for the whole family. And then at the same time, it's not just working at home. He says they also must be kind. And I guess those two things go together. Because with all that women deal with in creating a flourishing home, it would be understandable if they occasionally were bitter towards others or had a biting attitude when somebody didn't recognize everything they had been through on any given day. The first century woman might have lost her cool on the local merchant or maybe a servant. Maybe the 21st century woman struggles in her relationships with her co-workers because of what's going on at home. But in any case, Paul calls older women to help younger women balance the call to create a flourishing environment at home and the call to kindness because 
At the end of the day, mothers are kind. Kindness is this generosity of spirit that looks past your own needs and defers to the needs of others. It's the same kind of attitude that God has towards us. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Kindness describes God's character almost better than anything else. Because kindness gets this thing that's so foreign to who we are as family people. To where we devolve into a selfish, me-centered attitude. God always thinks about the good of others. And when a young mother or an older mother sacrifices her comfort so her kids can thrive, so her kids don't have to worry about their science projects, so they stay up all night doing it for them. You know, when they do that, that is God's kindness in action. And that's what Paul calls young women to take on. The church needs mothers. Mothers who live godly lives teach other mothers to live godly lives. You know, we get back to this idea of the church and women and whether or not Christianity is good. And I come back to my mom and my grandma, who I'm sure could have done anything else with their lives, but they invested in me. And I'm forever changed because of it. Can't forget the stories. Can't forget the experiences. Older sisters, let me tell you, the Word of God is consistent in the impact one faithful woman can make on the generations. You may feel that your days of useful service are up. Maybe you never had kids, and so what do you have to offer the world? Or Maybe your kids are grown and gone, and you're just left to live it out, hoping to get a call from them on your birthday or on Mother's Day, maybe a card in the mail. But invest in the next generation. For some moms, the most important thing they could receive is just a knowing nod or a careful word after church, hey, you're doing a great job with your kids. The little years are hard. Keep up the good work. Share with them your experiences, the heartaches you've had as a mother. Help them to gain the wisdom that only comes from experience. And they'll either learn it the hard way or like your favorite old recipes, they'll pick it up from you. So invest in the next generation. And young sisters, as y'all give yourselves to newborn babies and, and kids, we appreciate y'all being here. Getting kids ready for church on Sunday morning is not easy. Trying to get them to behave in church is not easy. Trying to keep your mind focused on God is not easy. But as you struggle... God is glorified in your life. And so give yourself to your family. You feel constant pressure. The Lord sees everything you do. And he loves you for it. And he's going to bless you for it. And you glorify him in the secret and the hidden tasks of motherhood and hard work.
Keep it up. You're doing a great job. Will you all pray with me?